We thank you for today. We thank you for everything that you allowed to come into our lives this week, that you used to teach us, you used to stretch us, you used to drag us maybe, kicking and screaming, uh, to the place that you want us to be, to the people you want us to be, more and more made into the image of your Son. I pray that you would bless your word going forth this morning, that your spirit would go forth, we'd walk out of here a little bit different than when we walked in here, and that we would bear real fruit in our lives. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to start things off a little bit different than usual, and since it's been a few weeks since we were last in the Gospel of John, give it a bit of review as to where we are right now, and then link up with our opening illustration here. A few weeks back, we last left Jesus at the home of Simon, the former leper, in the village of Bethany. It was there that Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead only a couple of months before. And it was there in our passage a few weeks ago that Lazarus' sister, Mary, couldn't contain her overwhelming gratitude for what Jesus had done for her brother and her family. To show this unspeakable gratefulness, Mary took the one item she owned that was of any earthly worth, a whopping 12 ounces of pure nard, probably what her parents had given her as her inheritance and dowry to get married and gave all of it to Jesus. Broke the container it was in, poured it out all over his feet and wiped his feet with her hair. If you remember, Mary only wanted to show her extreme appreciation. But Jesus pointed out that it ultimately meant something more. Mary was also anointing his body with oil in anticipation of his imminent burial. And Jesus knew what lay in between that moment and his burial. We talked about how as his back was torn apart, the nails driven into his hands and feet, and his blood flowed down his body. The scent of that perfume most likely still persisted on the skin of his feet. And it may have reminded him why he was putting himself through all of that torture. In full obedience to his heavenly father and out of his indescribable love for us. The environment of this whole scene was a lavish banquet in Jesus' honor. Lazarus, obviously the recipient of the mercy and grace of Jesus' unprecedented miracle of raising him from the dead after he had been dead for four days, was there at this banquet as well. People were no different 2,000 years ago than they are today, so as it was the time of the Passover and Jewish people are pouring into Jerusalem from all over the ancient Mediterranean world, they come flocking. Word spread of Lazarus' resurrection like wildfire. And like I've said recently, God used all of this rumor mill for as many of his people to find out about his son, what his son had done, and subsequently what would happen in only a few days. Here's where we link up to our opening illustration this morning. Who here heard about all the craziness surrounding the Taylor Swift concert in Philadelphia earlier this month and then at MetLife Stadium this past month. Anybody hear about this? Okay, about half of you, all right. 
It was apparently her first tour in five years. Fans crashed StubHub looking for tickets. People bought tickets, then StubHub didn't send them to them. And if you could get a ticket, at one point, it was $1,000 for a nosebleed seat behind the stage. $1,000. Tens of thousands of ticket holders flooded Lincoln Financial Field, and 20,000 people who didn't have tickets simply showed up to the parking lot just to sing songs along from outside the stadium. The chaos was so bad at the Lynx parking lot that when Taylor Swift next went to MetLife Stadium here in Jersey only a few days ago, the NJ police warned people that if they didn't have a ticket, they would not be allowed into the parking lot. Governor Murphy was quoted as saying about the three-night concert event that they were preparing for literally three Super Bowls in a row at the stadium. On the first night alone, there were 70,000 people packed, packing out the stadium. And all of this just to see one person. It wasn't 70,000 people, but this is, this, this is the idea of the fever pitch of the crowds leaving Jerusalem to go catch a glimpse of Jesus and Lazarus. That's what I'm trying to get across here when we get to our first verse of our passage this morning. So if you brought your Bibles with you, please turn to John chapter 12. It's in the New Testament if you're having trouble finding it or look it up in the table of contents. No shame about that. Uh, John chapter 12, we're going to pick up in verse 9 here, or you can look this up on your favorite Bible app on your smartphone or there's a, pew, a Bible located in the pew in front of you. John chapter 12, verse 9, we read, The large crowd of the Jews then learned that he was there, and they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. This was the popular, trending, and famous spectacle to see. Everyone had heard about Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. But then Jesus had disappeared, leaving many to wonder if he would even show up for Passover. And then all of a sudden, someone in Bethany sees Jesus at Simon's house, and that was it. Now everyone who could pours out of Jerusalem and the surrounding area just to catch a glimpse at who many were rumoring to be the Messiah, the prophesied king who would restore the kingdom of Israel and usher in a kingdom of peace and prosperity. But who wasn't happy about any of this? The Pharisees, the chief priests, and other religious leaders. They had already put out an arrest warrant for Jesus that if anyone caught word about where Jesus was, they were to immediately notify the authorities. Now the chief priests take it one step further, verses 10 through 11. But the chief priests plan to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, Many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. It wasn't enough that they were out to arrest and condemn a man who hadn't done anything wrong, but now they wanted to put Lazarus to death simply for being the recipient of the miracle and not being able to help telling everyone about it. Talk about human depravity, right? What's even more cruel about this plan is that what had just happened to Lazarus he had just been raised back to life from the dead. 
Now the religious leaders want to kill him all over again. In short, they want to erase what Jesus had just done. Make it as though it had never happened. If Lazarus was dead, nobody could talk about Jesus raising him back from the dead again. In the words of any kid who grew up playing pirates, dead men tell no tales, right? That's the passion of one side of what's happening here. Seething anger and murderous intent. Here's the passion of the other side, verses 12 through 15. On the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him and began to shout, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. Now this should sound familiar. Does this sound familiar to anybody? Okay. It should sound familiar because we covered this only a couple months ago. What is this describing? This is describing the triumphal entry of Jesus. We read here that it was the next day from this that this huge crowd going to try to catch a glimpse of Jesus and Lazarus start pouring out from Jerusalem. Once they find out, he's starting to go towards Jerusalem. Since we spent so much time on the details of the prophecies quoted here and the meaning of the palm branches and the donkey on Palm Sunday, I'll only touch on those today. If you missed that message and you want to go back and learn more about the details of those prophecies fulfilled on Palm Sunday, you can go to our website, fellowshipch.org, and navigate to the message on Matthew 21 entitled Fulfillment and Dated from April 2nd. In short, and in connection with the other gospel accounts, as Jesus and his disciples left Bethany, headed towards Jerusalem, and stopped in neighboring Bethphage on the way, Jesus had his disciples untie a donkey and her colt from there and bring them to him. Since both the mother donkey and the son donkey are mentioned together, the mother would have accompanied her colt, and Jesus may have rode each of them a portion of the distance from Bethphage to Jerusalem. He did this on purpose to directly fulfill Zechariah 9.9, which John quotes here in verse 11. Behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. Zechariah 9 is a messianic prophetic passage that also references the restoration of Judah where the king of Jerusalem would be directly tied to salvation of Jerusalem and he would be recognized by riding to Jerusalem on what? A donkey. All right, you're good. You're paying attention. Even the colt of a donkey. It was to turn the understanding of royalty on its head. For instead of a mighty war horse riding in victory, this king would ride into Jerusalem on a symbol of humility and peace. Horses were used for victorious military leaders. Donkeys were used on peace treaty missions. 
And while Jesus will ride into Jerusalem on a mighty war, war horse as a victorious military conqueror, his animal of transport during his first messianic recognition was connected to establishing a peace treaty between God and all of humanity. Indeed, a new covenant that would only be ratified with his own blood. The connection with Zechariah 9.9, however, with a king entering Jerusalem imbued with salvation for Jerusalem was undeniable to the crowd. Not only did the people wave palm branches, but what else did they lay down before Jesus according to the other gospel accounts? Anybody? Thank you. They're cloaks. In the Old Testament, this was a sign of pledging loyalty to a new king. Laying your cloak out before uh, the new leader was a symbolic way for you to pledge loyalty to him as the new king. In 2 Kings 9.9, when God commanded Elisha to have Jehu, the commander of Israel's army, to be made king in the place of evil Ahab's descendant, anointed to be the next king over Israel, this is what happens next. Then they hurried, and each man took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps and blew the trumpet, saying, Jehu is king. The crowd has this in mind when they spread their cloaks out on the ground for Jesus on the donkey to ride over. They're pledging their loyalty to him as the new king. The palm branches were symbols of military victory. The crowd is also shouting a quote from Psalm 118, a thoroughly messianic passage about the righteous servant of God entering the gates of Jerusalem and being the means of God's salvation for Jerusalem. The palm branches of victory and the chanting of John 13, a reference to Psalm 118, are a clear indication that the crowd recognizes Jesus as the righteous king who would bring salvation to Jerusalem. In fact, what do they keep shouting? They keep shouting, Hosanna. Anybody know what Hosanna means? It means save, we pray. They wanted that salvation for Jerusalem now. Well, what the crowd is probably not thinking about is that Psalm 118 also mentions a festival sacrifice that is bound with the boughs of trees, another reference to palm branches. By them waving the palm branches and laying down their cloaks before Jesus, they're unknowingly also connecting Jesus to a festival sacrifice. And as we can look back on it, namely the Passover sacrifice, as well as the atonement sacrifice. Meanwhile, all this time, the disciples are watching all this going on. The VIP treatment of the guy they're following, drinking it all in, celebrating right along with the massive crowd that is now swelled to very close to everyone in the city and thinking right along the same lines as the crowd, this is awesome! They also didn't get it. They also didn't get the true purpose of this first official entry through the gates of Jerusalem. They would, but not yet. One of the guys who was there that day, one of Jesus' disciples and drinking it all in right alongside of him, wrote that he had no clue at the time, but eventually did. Verse 16, 
These things his disciples did not understand at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. Notice what the Apostle John says, though. He says that it wasn't even until Jesus was glorified, or another word to describe Jesus' resurrection and resurrection body, that they finally put all the pieces together. Finally, it all clicked as to what Jesus' purpose and message with his entrance on a donkey was. It wasn't what the people thought. It wasn't what the people wanted. They thought that Jesus was riding into Jerusalem on a donkey as the shot over the bow of launching an all-out war campaign against the Romans, drive them out in humiliation out of Jerusalem and out of the land of Israel, and establish his messianic kingdom. That was their concept of his salvation, purely physical and national salvation. What Jesus was doing was fulfilling prophecy establishing himself as king, but as the suffering servant king of Isaiah's prophecies, who would be bringing salvation, but not earthly salvation, full and complete freedom and salvation from the curse of sin and destiny of hell, not only for his own people, but for all the people of the earth. It's a complete opposite understanding. After Jesus died for sin, rose again to life, and was given a glorified resurrection body, the disciples finally understood the true meaning of that triumphal entry. It wasn't a triumphal entry of military overthrow. It was a triumphal entry against sin, death, hell, and all the powers of darkness. And I don't know about you, but that is the true triumphal entry I'm grateful for. Amen? It was a shot across the bow, but it wasn't meant for the Romans. It was meant for Satan, sin, death, and hell. He's saying, this is your warning, that I'm here to defeat you, says Jesus, with this triumphal entry. We'll come back to this in a minute. The crowd then gets out of control, verses 17 through 18. So the people who were with him, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to testify about him. For this reason also the people went and met him, because they heard that he had performed this sign. We see here the movement of the growth of this crowd. Those who were in Bethany a couple of months before, who were there to comfort the bereaved at the death of Lazarus, witnessed something truly breathtaking and unbelievable. And they were now telling everyone about what Jesus had done. See, the chief priests could seek to kill Jesus. They could even seek to kill Lazarus. But there was absolutely no way they were going to be able to kill the message of what Jesus could do. It just kept spreading like wildfire, out of control. And the more people who heard about it, the more people who joined this crowd, spreading the news about what had happened even more. That's the nature of the gospel message. The more you try to kill it, the more you try to eradicate it, the more you try to water it down, it just keeps spreading. Why? Because it's salvation, it's power, it's new life. 
Different world and local governments and authorities can try and kill and persecute followers of Jesus all over the world, but they are woefully and pathetically misguided. You cannot kill the gospel of Jesus Christ no matter how many of us disciples of Jesus you kill. It will only keep spreading and there's nothing you can do to stop it. The Pharisees see the futility of trying to stop what is happening, at least at this point, verse 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. And so they don't do anything about it at that point. It's the same unstoppable, unquenchable, unconquerable message kicked off at the triumphal entry 2,000 years ago. It's the same today. Jesus physically died and put to death the power and curse of sin, making the payment for it we had no hope of paying. Jesus physically rose again from the dead, crushing the power of Satan, hell, and death itself. And Jesus gives this salvation to anyone who comes to him in repentance of their sin, faith in what he accomplished in his death and resurrection, and recognition as king. Not just the messianic king of Israel, but the king over their life and life decisions. When we do that, our eyes are opened, just as the disciples were, to the true mission of the first triumphal entry and what we have to look forward to at the second coming, the second triumphal entry. We recognize what Jesus' message was as king at the first triumphal entry. We see his mission of establishing the peace treaty of the new covenant with his own blood. We take him as our source of salvation from sin and authority as king over our lives now. We take him as victorious over addictions in our lives, over depression, fear, and anxiety, over death and hell, and over all the kingdom of Satan and his demonic oppressions. Do we have a misunderstanding of Jesus like the crowd did in Jerusalem that day 2,000 years ago? Do we think we have no need of repentance and that we're good enough to get into heaven without taking Jesus' death and resurrection as being on our behalf and for us? Do we think we can believe in a Jesus that is completely disconnected from the truth of the rest of God's word? Do we think we can withhold aspects of our lives from the authority of Jesus' kingship over them? Do we try to twist and manipulate what Jesus said in God's word to mean something entirely different? Or do we simply accept Jesus at face value for what he is, who he is, and what his mission of sacrifice and resurrection meant? Do we simply take Jesus as paying for our salvation for us and repentance of our sin? Do we simply take the entirety of God's word of which Jesus is the embodiment and follow it simply at face value and faith in who God is? Do we recognize Jesus as the king over all, including over every aspect of our lives, and simply follow him and his instruction in his word? 
We know this. Humanity loves to overcomplicate everything, right? Come up with our own rules like the Pharisees. Come up with a human earned entrance into heaven. Manipulate, twist, and create a God who is nothing like the God of the Bible. The crowd in Jerusalem that day, 2,000 years ago, had all of these preconceptions about Jesus and who he was supposed to be as the Messiah, but none of them lined up with what Jesus was accomplishing that time around. We need to cast aside our preconceptions about Jesus, who we think he should be, who we think he should be like, what he would say about anything today, including how he'd respond to any given hot topic, social or political issue, and simply accept him for who he really is. How do we do that? Firstly, we need to be made right with him. By coming to God in repentance and taking Jesus' death and resurrection as the only source of salvation from our sin and making him king over the rest of our lives. Then God sends the Holy Spirit to come make a home within us, opening our eyes to see his word and the surrounding world the way he wants us to. And then we're able to get to know who Jesus simply is through reading and seeking to accurately understand his word and through communing with him in prayer. The more we get to know him through prayer and an accurate understanding of his word, the more we know how he wants us to live as his subjects, what decisions to make in this life, and how he would want us to view and respond to any given hot topic, social, or political issue. If we accept him as king now, And all we have to look forward to about the future is him as king reigning over the entire world. This world is chaotic and messed up. And that's putting it lightly, right? And it will only continue to go down that road. Biblical Christianity will continue to be sought to be erased from American society. We already see it now. Forget religious reasoning. People will continue to chuck even logic, reason, and science out the window to base worldviews, the value of preborn life, children, and gender ideology on feelings and tolerance. Death, destruction, and mutilation will continue to become more and more commonplace. Truth will continue to become more and more subjective and based on your lived experience. Satanic groups will continue to become more and more emboldened, and Satan himself will continue to make himself less and less a part of the unseen world and more and more a part of the seen world. We can already see it. We might be tempted to live in fear because of all of this. We might be tempted to want to run away. We might be tempted to want to cut ourselves off from society and have no human interactions. But none of those are biblical ways of viewing this life Jesus has called us to live. If we're not to live in fear, how should all of this rise in satanic thinking along with Satan's obvious current strategy of not even attempting to hide himself behind other mirages cause us to be? You want to know something? It should cause us to be excited. Not fearful, excited. 
What in the world am I talking about? We should be excited about Satan's boldness, the increased persecution of biblical Christians, and the complete lack of common sense and logic in humanity. Why? Because Satan's boldness makes it clear he knows he doesn't have any time left. And he doesn't have any time to waste hiding behind worldly influences and living. So what does that mean? That means Jesus is coming back for us soon. Think of it this way. The more and more we see Satan making himself known in this world, the closer and closer we are to Jesus rescuing us from this world. The more and more we see the spirit and the message of the Antichrist being spewed around so unabashedly by people who think it's world's better and more loving than anything God's word has to say, the closer and closer we are to the great tribulation, which we won't have to worry about, and Jesus' full return as king to earth at the second triumphal entry. At that point, Jesus will return on a mighty steed, annihilating all those who are warring against his people. He won't need a crowd to announce his arrival. He'll let his destruction do the announcing of his arrival. Rather than the limited scope of only kicking the Romans out of Jerusalem, he will be obliterating all the armies of evil and throwing Satan in chains for a thousand years. And his kingdom will not only be relegated to Israel, but the entire face of the earth. Let us simply accept Jesus' mission and message for his first triumphal entry, committing our lives to him as Savior and King now, while we eagerly await his return to rescue his children from this evil world, knowing we'll return with him fully at his second triumphal entry with glorified bodies ourselves. And knowing all we have awaiting us, let us live our lives according to the authority, to his authority and the authority of his word and do the work of continuing to spread the wildfire message of Jesus' gospel of salvation until we no longer have breath or he bursts out of heaven for us. He is salvation. He is victory. He is king. Hosanna. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage in John that recounts the triumphal entry. We know it's talked about in the other Gospels, but we thank you for what is revealed to us here in the Gospel of John. I pray that we would throw out any preconceptions of you that we might be holding right now, and that we'll just be driven to go to your word and understand who you are through a simple an accurate understanding of your word. And then I pray, Lord, that that would change something in us. If we haven't repented of our sin and made you Savior and King over our lives, I pray that we would do that right now. If we have, but we're withholding something from your kingship authority, I pray that we would surrender that to you. I pray that we would live the life you have called us to in boldness and excitement without fear because we know you're coming soon. And let us be about the work in spreading that wildfire gospel message you have called us to do. I pray all these things in Jesus' name.